This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the podcast, we talk with Lily Woodbury about the impacts of mining sand around the world. And how about Greg Fish talking about world of weird things and working less and being more efficient? I think we're all in for that. Plus, Sir Christopher Gilbert checks in for Japan. Talk Olympics and more on the International Dispatch. Welcome to the International Dispatch from our world citizen. Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. A former Canadian member of the shift from New Zealand, living in Japan, as clear as can be. Sir Christopher Gilbert, how are you? I'm good. I see you've moved on to producer number two since I've left. Is your second producer you're on to now, Shane? Well, three, actually, because we had Sunshine Sparkle Pants for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> I love that yeah. nickname. It's yeah. such the best nickname for him. It honestly is. He, it's like, he, he went he and got a... Uh, yeah. He totally is. He went and got a day job. So, And Ryan took the night off, so we've got Clack here, who's filling in and uh, doing all the hard work, which is awesome. Clack is the best name for radio, I think. Like oh. everyone wants a producer called Clack. Clack I agree. Well, yeah. there you go. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I, I agree with myself as well, Clack. <laughs> That's beautiful. Uh, all right, so Christopher Gilbert, um, you're in Tokyo, and you've got a big long list of things that we're going to talk about here. Yeah. But I, I thought we might as well start with um, the Olympics. And uh, clearly, excitement has overwhelmed the people of Japan. And wow. uh, everyone's excited and can't wait to go. Oh, man. I was on a train the other day, which I very rarely do anymore um, because uh, we don't have lockdown here. We have self-regulated lockdown until we're vaccinated, which is just to control our own bodies, keep our limbs to ourselves, you know, maintain mastery of our own domain. And okay. so I don't go on trains, but um, but they have electronic uh, like video advertisements on the trains, and uh, they had the Olympic ones uh, the other day, and that's when I realized it's really happening. Um, for months and months and months of of being nearly certain it would be cancelled, I saw the advertisements, and um, it felt like the marketing team had kind of um, you know, in Jurassic Park where they, where they they dropped the 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 electricity and they just let the dinosaurs kind of like run rampant all over uh you know the island that's what it feels like the uh, the tokyo olympics marketing team has done now they've just hmm. the electric fences are down the t-rex is out and it's just stomping all over tokyo um but uh yeah nobody cares nobody uh just 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 the marketing team i think they're pretty happy um yeah. everyone else is miserable still yeah uh, they're doing some tickets for locals do you think locals are gonna go I mean the insane ones, sure. Yep. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that a population of 30 million people in Greater Tokyo, you'll get a, a 10,000 crazy people at every venue um, that mm. that actively want to, you know, get sick or or uh, go to a, a super spreading event. Like 10,000 10, people at an event is, you know, I mean, it's not that much. I I do think that that the, all of the medical experts were saying obviously as we all know do not have any spectators at these events like just mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy that we're doing this at all don't make don't let people go and uh so it's a it's a maximum 50 percent capacity which i guess you know there's a uh hopefully a, a seat or two between every 
you know, group, a bubble of people that are going to, uh, you know, the equestrian because it's so important to go see horses jump over things in the oh, middle of a pandemic. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so I, I think people are going to go. There are people who have bought tickets who don't want refunds, and um, you know, people just want to change. It's been it's been a year and a half of this, you know, and and uh, especially in this part of the world, it's been going on longer than in, in Canada. Uh, you know, just every day wearing masks. So I think people might just want to go and do something special. I understand. I, it. Uh, yeah, I get that. I um, I've looked up a couple of numbers here. The numbers of vaccines, just to give everyone else who's listening uh, some perspective, is the number of vaccines that have been uh, doled out in Canada is 32.5 million, uh, uh, roughly. Okay. Uh, and that right. puts us, I don't know, like 25th down per, like, so total doses, 32.5 million, which works out to about 86 out of 100 people have received one dose. So I scrolled and I death scrolled and death scrolled and death scrolled until I found Japan. Mm. Japan is way down the list. Uh, mm. You remember that the the you know this is happening. Those those um you know the, those athletes are coming. They're they're going to Japan, which really is not a threat to the athletes at all. It's mostly threat to. Japan. So the total yeah. number of vaccines that have been given out in Japan is 32,900,000. So more than Canada. But the vaccines per 100 people is 26, less than a third. Yeah. I mean, the, the so, population of Japan is 126 million people. So yeah. Yeah. So imagine, imagine Canada's response to COVID in America. And that's what the base looks like in Japan. Yeah. I mean, there's a variety of reasons why it's been so slow. I mean, there's been stuff ups and, you know, uh, skepticism about Western medicine and all kinds of stuff. I will say that in the last month, that number has absolutely taken off. The, the, the rollout here has exploded. Um, but just for some context, uh, just, you know, my own personal um, anecdote is that I live in Shibuya City, which is one of the biggest cities inside Tokyo. And I am expecting my voucher number. My voucher number will uh, allow me to go and uh, enroll for a vaccine somewhere. I'm expecting to receive that by the end of this month. And then I can use that to get a vaccine somewhere maybe a month later for my first dose. So that, that is a, a usual if not maybe on the speedier side of things example so what kind of vaccines are they giving out a lot of pfizer um most of the, if you go to a local clinic it's going to be pfizer uh if you go to the mass vaccination center which is in the middle of tokyo and osaka where they do about fifteen thousand a day uh it'll be moderna i believe Hmm. Um, I think AstraZeneca has been approved here, but it's not really used. Uh, the main two vaccines here are Pfizer and, and uh, Moderna, much to my liking, you know. Um, I will tell you, though, Shane, just very quickly, uh, that just while we're on Japan still, um, the state of emergency here, which is, I guess, like our quote-unquote lockdown, I mean, going on for a couple of months, has just ended. It meant that we could not go anywhere really after eight o'clock because there was nothing open. Everything closed at eight o'clock and there was no alcohol served anywhere. So you couldn't go to the pub. You couldn't go to the restaurant for a drink hmm. that has just ended. 
but what they've replaced it with is very similar closing hours, but you can get drunk now between the hours of five o'clock and seven o'clock in the evening, every evening for two hours, you're allowed to drink alcohol. You're allowed to drink alcohol for a maximum of 90 minutes if you are by yourself or with one person more, maximum. So parties of two can just go at the same time to get absolutely sloshed between the hours of five and seven in Japan. And uh, so it's, we've, got, we've, we've lost a, a state of emergency and, and gained a drinking game. Uh, that does not include sweatpants sofa drunk in your own place, though, right? You can still do that. Oh, no, we can always do that. That's 24-7. Yeah. Oh goodness, that's my. That was like most of. I mean, that's really the biggest impact on me. If they took it with that, I would nah. be in big trouble. What do you think I'm doing every day? Ever since I quit the shift, I'm just wearing. Right I'm wearing easy pants and just drinking my highballs. <laughs> easy pants. <laughs> Sir Christopher Gilbert is in Tokyo, Japan, with the International Dispatch. Okay, where are we going on tour? We're going on news tour here. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's start in America. Uh, I think you guys mentioned you're going to touch on this, or have touched on this. So sorry if I'm stealing your angle. Um, but there's a much a much a to do in the United States since February up to now. But as a big splash now, uh, no pun intended, because New York Times have covered it that the tuna in a subway sandwich might not be, you know, tuna. Yep. But no, we saved it just uh, for you, Chris. You're the first one to deliver oh, this yes. breaking news. Thanks, Clark. You know, like Ryan would never have done that for me. Ryan would no. have emailed me and been like, um, actually I'm doing this story so you can, you know, just jog on. But no, <laughs> he would have been, you um, guys... he would have built you a subway sub out of Lego and then gone. And by the <laughs> way, here's my subway sub. And I'm like, that doesn't help me, Ryan. I want my story back. Um, but yeah, no. So Subway uh, in the U.S. Apparently, the tuna is not tuna, although it is still Subway. Uh, so I will just read a little bit about here from the bite. Tuna trouble. After a lawsuit claimed that the gigantic Subway chain Subway was lying about using real tuna as food, a reporter from the New York Times decided to investigate. Um, after buying up tuna sandwiches from a variety of different subway locations, freezing the mystery meat, sending the fish to a testing lab, the NYT investigation found there was absolutely zero trace of any DNA from a tuna spinis subway claims to offer. A surprise finding that could show nefarious sourcing by the fast food brand, but more likely illustrates the limitations of genetic analysis and also illustrates the snootiness of the New York Times for doing DNA testing because this was already done several months ago in February by Inside Edition. Uh, thank you to your lovely producer for his um, sleuthing here to find this audio for me. Uh, so this was done by Inside Edition um, a few months ago already. Let's have a listen to what they did. When you order at a fast food place, you assume you're getting what you asked for. Well, two customers at Subway say there wasn't tuna in their tuna sandwich, and they are suing the sandwich shop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, I expect that when you go to a uh, Subway or a McDonald's or a Popeye's Chicken or a Tim Hortons or whatever, Triple O's, uh, you assume apparently that you're getting what you asked for, uh, but you don't know what it might be that you asked for to begin with. So, uh, you know, I, I, <laughs> I don't think there's much surprises <laughs> so far in this story. Let, let's listen to the next clip. Subway fighting back this morning against claims that its tuna sandwiches don't actually have any tuna. Subway's tuna salad sub 
doesn't actually have tuna or fish in it. In a startling lawsuit, two customers in California claim that the tuna sandwich does not contain tuna or have any ingredient that constitutes tuna. Yeah. I mean, hmm. I, I don't know where this lawsuit came from, Shane. I watched the clip three or four times and, and inside edition, uh, more like outside edition, don't seem to know what's going on. I did not hear what this, um, what this lawsuit was about at all. But uh, I did ask uh, Clack to steal one more clip. Can we hit that last clip, Clack? No clip tuna clack. in the tuna? Subway customers coast to coast want to know what's going on. That's insane. I mean, no tuna in a tuna fish sandwich? That's odd. How could you not have tuna? In tuna. Yeah. Well, how can, turns out how can, uh, it's, it's not a tuna. Hey. <laughs> I mean, like, you get those, the, like, I remember we used to buy crab meat in New Zealand, you know, yep. like kind of like raw fish, you know, from the supermarket, and it's not crab, it's shark. And I feel in 2021, you know, with, with our hyper-commercialized society, we're all consumers. For someone to ask, how can tuna not be tuna when you're buying it from Subway is kind of a dumb question. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, you're buying Subway, right? Like, I'm not mm -hmm. buying a teriyaki chicken sandwich and being like, excuse me, is there real teriyaki, real chicken and real sandwich in my teriyaki chicken sandwich? No one's doing that. You're buying mm -hmm. Subway well aware of what you're doing, which is you're buying absolute nonsense food. It's rubbish food. You know you're doing it. You still want to eat it. Drop the lawsuit, be quiet, and eat your non-tuna sandwich. That's what I have to say about that story. Uh, yeah, I mean, you might even ask a question, is this actually bread? Just saying. <laughs> that, that, that I can get behind. I would like, <laughs> some, please, someone out there, go to Subway and be like, um, excuse me, is this real bread? Mm -hmm. <laughs> is um, this real lettuce? Where, is it, where did you source this lettuce from? But this is so curious in general, this whole topic, because A&W has marketed forever that, you know, there's no hormones in their beef, right? Yeah. Now, they've changed that to grass-fed now. But the, one of the reasons why was because they actually they measured the hormone levels in the bread, and there was more hormones in the bread than there was in the beef anyway. Like, I mean, so there's all yeah. kinds of research done on that stuff. And, and, I mean, I think people are, I hope, people are catching on to... Uh, the BS, right? The spin it, you yeah. know, while we just said it was a tuna sandwich, we didn't say we in a the tuna flavored sandwich, yeah, not actually exactly. a tuna. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, there's a certain yeah. point whether it's a tuna and then you're like, okay, is it's, if it's, a, you call it a tuna, it, it's gotta be a tuna. Yeah, no, I, no, yeah. I mean, like, it's a spectrum, right? There was an example in New Zealand, I think, about 20 years ago, where some kids, is a grape drink, like a grape soda in New Zealand called Ribena, and it claimed to have X percentage of vitamin C, and a couple of school kids did a test and found that there was no vitamin C in Ribena, and it, it just, this thing totally exploded, and Ribena had to apologize, and well, I'm sorry we didn't give you enough vitamin C or whatever, but, like, you're drinking soda. And, and like at Subway, you're drinking a takeaway fast food sandwich. You know what you're doing. And so, but there is a spectrum, I think, of starting at that point where it's your, your ultimate convenience, um, uh, hyper fast food, 
uh, all the way to, uh, you know, like whittling yourself a fishing rod and going out in a robot to catch the tuna yourself. There is a spectrum between those two things. And it's like you can decide where you want to land on that spectrum. You know, you can go to the supermarket and buy tuna and make your own sandwich. Uh, you can maybe source uh, ethically sourced tuna, which is not overfished. Or you can go to Subway. You know, and, and I think if you're choosing to go to Subway, you don't have much of a, a one for or a tune, tuna. I, I tried to make a joke there. It didn't work. You don't really have a leg to stand on. You don't have you a know. fin in the, in the fight? Or something? Yeah, thank you. God, that was much better. I mean, they um, were still terrible, but... Yeah, I mean, I like their sandwiches, but I also don't expect that that chicken that doesn't really look like chicken is actually all chicken, I suppose. I just, is it just me? Like, I end up, I don't want to go on with this story too long, but I just end up screaming at my laptop screen. Like, it's Subway. You know, like, like people who go and complain about the nutrient value in, like, a Chick-fil-A or something. And it's like, what do you expect? It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I just, I've, yep. I've got to go on to the next story. I'm getting upset. Yep. Let's move along. Let's go on yeah. more. Before, okay, let's go on to McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, so just, this is very quickly. Uh, I haven't been vaccinated, so I was angry about this. Uh, NBC Los Angeles. Uh, McDonald's is offering free COVID-19 vaccines at some of the California stores. McDonald's is partnering up with the California Department of Public Health to offer free COVID-19 vaccinations at more than 70 locations beginning June 21st. It doesn't say what vaccine they're going to use, but it does say the pop-up clinics will offer vaccines to the employees, their families, uh, and the general public. Those who get a vaccine at McDonald's will get receive a coupon or one free menu item, according to the company. Um, it does not include whether that menu item uh, is uh, supersized or includes bonus packs, such as a Happy Meal, um, which I really hope it does. Because I think if you get vaccined, uh, vaccinated um, at McDonald's, you, you deserve a Happy Meal um, and, and, a, and a little toy to, to mm -hmm. take home with you and put on Instagram. So um, I don't know. Good job, McDonald's, I guess. Uh, well, I'm going to add on to that. At the in Alberta, they're giving away the vaccine lottery of a million dollars and some free tickets to the Calgary Stampede. And yeah. in Manitoba, they're giving away free weed. So, oh, I mean Man Manitoba. I mean, I think uh, a story we didn't do. Or maybe we did do it a couple of weeks ago. Which Seattle is doing the same thing, giving away free weed. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, vaccination is is motivation and incentive enough. But um, I think at the moment they might be scraping the bottom of the barrel in some places for those who want to get vaccinated. So you've mm -hmm. got to start giving them things like um. You know, like a, a fish fillet to to uh, pull them in through the door and get the needle in their arm. A quarter pounder. As long as you understand that that's actually not a fish fillet. <laughs> yes, it's their fish in this <laughs> fish fillet. Okay, let's not go down that path again. Um, no. uh, okay, I, uh, okay, I, this is a quick one that I didn't run past you, Shane. I'm sorry, but right. um, I just right. okay, like, uh, North Korea has asked China to stop calling Kim Jong Un fat. That's actually like an article. Yeah, this is from Nine News Australia, uh, so I wouldn't consider it, you know, news. But it reads: uh, North Korea has reportedly made an official request to state officials in China, pleading, pleading, it says, with them to stop calling Kim Jong Un fat. Um, in China, apparently, they're calling him Kim Fatty the Third. It's a popular nickname for the North Korean leader in neighboring China. Other popular nicknames include Jing Pang Pang, which means Kim Fatty Fat. And Kim San Fei, which is Kim Abundant the Third, 
<laughs> I kind of like uh, North Korean government officials are terrified the leader will find out about the insult and look for someone to blame that's the real thing here they're all trying to save their own butts and their own heads from rolling because they're frantically tearing up his newspapers and spilling coffee over them in the morning to stop <laughs> prevent him from reading the Chinese calling him King Fatty Fat Fat every day it comes as no surprise that North Korean officials fear the wrath of their dictator, uh, blah, 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 blah. Many have fallen afoul of him, finding themselves on the opposite end of a military firing, firing line. Uh, he is believed to have piled on 38 kilograms in recent years due to his love of Swiss cheese, whiskey, and scallops, according to The Sun, which we can't blame him because, you know, so did Elvis. So yeah. there you go. All right, a little body shaming in the international news. Sir Christopher Gilbert, live oh, no, from Tokyo, from Japan. No, no, not from Christopher Gilbert. The segment was from Christopher Gilbert. He is body shaming no one. Whew, I don't Thank want you. you to get like a, a rocket in your living room or something there. Oh, my goodness. Just in case we have listeners in North Korea. Um, <laughs> thanks, buddy. Great to see your face. Thanks for being here. Yeah, I had a fun one with you guys this week. Talk to you next week. This is the Shift Podcast. There are so many things that we all don't understand and we assume. And one thing that I, I really don't like in uh, agenda reports and agenda writing, opinion writing, sometimes in the news, is that we throw topics into one big basket. You know, like everybody talks about how we can live cleaner lives, but then we throw, you know, fossil fuels into this thing where, by the way, we got to get rid of it all. And at the same time, we all know that, you know, plastics are a big part of our lives. So we can't just get rid of it. But at the same time, sure would be awesome if we stopped throwing it in the ocean. You know what I'm saying? And if we stopped throwing it all away after one quick use. So there's got to be better ways to do things. We can talk about it as a broad scope of things, or we can actually drill it down to sort of a micro level and talk about the specifics. This is exactly why uh, I enjoy my conversations with Lily so incredibly much. Now, Lily Woodbury is uh, an environmentalist. She's an environmental studies uh, smart person, and she's my go-to smart person. Lily, how are you? Hey, Shane. Great to be on here with you, Anna. Thanks for those kind words. You're making me blush. <laughs> I admire Lily mostly because of her fearless uh, surfing habits, really. Um, <laughs> uh, slimy things for me. <laughs> but... <laughs> um, so you wrote an article, it's on your blog at lilywoodbury.com. It is about sand and this really caught my attention. So I wanted to geek out about sand. Now you're a beach person. Uh, you do beach cleanups all the time. This is really one of the core pieces of your world. Uh, being in Tofino, you love to surf. So it makes sense to me that the beaches would be incredibly important to you now, but as an environmentalist, things like solar power also important and it seems to me from your article, that's where the crossroads begin. Yeah. So the article I wrote about sand mining uh, a few weeks back, that was actually inspired um, through the Surfrider Short Film Festival that I run annually every autumn, which I've been doing for the last five years. And in 2019, we showed a short film um, called Lost Worlds, and it actually chronicles sand mining that's happening on a small Cambodian island where the sand hmm. being dredged. Um, from the mangrove forests, which are like totally foundational for the communities there, are, are being mined beyond what can be replenished. 
And so this really caught my eye and really caught my interest, as you say, because we do tons of beach cleanups. So much of our lives exist on the beach. And as I alluded to in the article, you know, sand seeps in everywhere. It seems ubiquitous. It seems like we could never run out of the stuff. How could it actually be um, a source of harm, of environmental racism? And so as I talk about in the article, um, mining, mining of sand is actually the most exploitive in the world, that sand and gravel uh, make up 85% of mineral extraction. Well, gravel is so incredibly utilitarian in, in so much construction, right? I mean, it's often used as the core piece of our roads that we drive on. Sand, uh, you know, involved with glass and all the different things that it is, is one of those, I think, grossly overlooked mining procedures. I mean, we get so excited about these big, tall buildings and all the, you know, glass on the side and look how pretty they are. But the reality is that glass has got to come from somewhere. Where, wh- whose beach is getting taken? And um, and that seems to be counterintuitive when you get into the, the conversation around, you know, stop using this kind of uh, product and start using that kind of product, not to mention that they obviously dance together in order to get glass and all the other things that sand makes. It has to be superheated to to make it all work. So it's 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 not even simple. It's not even easy. It is an incredibly complicated dance that all of these pieces are doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You you nailed it. It's like so much of the sand is being mined from developing nations. Just like in that that film I alluded to, Lost Worlds, those ecosystems are being dredged for capturing that sand for building up Singapore. And so, yeah, the the developed world privileged nations really depend on this this sand from developed nations. And so, it's not enough to say, oh, hey, we just need to we need to end it. It really needs to come from the the demand side of things from these countries to be like, okay, well, we need to find alternatives for what we're going to be using in construction and using for glass. And as I bring back to you all the time in Surfrider Foundation, this comes back to a circular economy for all materials, whether that's glass, concrete, plastics, wood, metal, etc. All of it needs to be brought back into the circular economy where we're not just taking these non-renewable resources, plastic and and sand alike, and using them once. And then at the end of their life cycle, they they end up becoming trash. So sand is incredibly important. It's used in so many different things. How can you do that? You know, I always think of the Lion King, the circle of life when you, when you say those things, which I think is really great because it makes it feel like it's, you know, it's fun. Um, How do you turn sand into be reused when we're melting it down into glass? Because the number of, um, you know, tons of sand is according to your article is 50 billion tons of sand and gravel mined each year and that's 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 yeah. flabbergasting yeah no it's no small amount that's for sure and there's a, a really great report sand rarer than one thinks by the unep global environmental alert service and they suggest optimizing the use of existing buildings and infrastructure so using recycled concrete rubble and quarry dust instead of having to use this raw sand you know, on the on the inverse, so much of the waste on this planet comes from the construction industry of of demolition. That typically it's cheaper and easier just to tear buildings down and throw them out than to actually mine the valuable materials that are there for for long term benefit. 
So again, it's like a matter of structuring our our regulation so that it's illegal to, you know, do demolition and throw things in the landfill and recover those materials that, that have so much value. So that's a really big part of it, as I mentioned before, is like bringing it back to using what we have and keeping materials in use, which are the founding principles of a circular economy. Okay, so when they tear up a road, that asphalt gets, you know, often, you know, broken down into lean asphalt and used in a different purpose or recycled back into asphalt. You know, so things have started. Uh, You know, obviously there is the, uh, if it's a building that is made of steel and concrete, the steel is taken out of it for the most part. But I would suggest that there's probably no laws that say they have to do it. It's just for the, the, the places where there's infrastructure to do it, that that gets done. Do Is that a safe assumption? Yeah, I would think that's a safe assumption. I think, you know, more and more as we become more resource taxed, that it becomes more expensive and more reach the carrying capacity of the earth, that we are going to have to turn to urban mining more, you know, to look in our existing infrastructure to take the the minerals, the materials that we need for the functionable objects that we need, the, fun- the other types of infrastructure that we need. And so, you know, yeah, so we're going to, we're absolutely going to need that as well as like look to alternative materials as well in order to reduce our demand. Where's one spot with sand that surprised you that I'm assuming if it surprises you, it's definitely going to surprise us. Is there anything that surprised you about sand? And I asked this for sort of two perspectives. Number one, where it's being taken from that surprised you the most and what we use it for every day that most people wouldn't realize. Yeah, it's a great question. It's been really interesting looking at this, um, the environmental justice atlas map and just seeing the places where, where sand's being extracted. So there's a lot of places in Southeast Asia, a lot of places in Africa. Another place that's been really hardly hit is in India, in Kerala. And so there's been a lot of sand mining happening on their, on their riverbanks there, which has, you know, obviously been impacting, um, the the different local wildlife including these really cool rare crocodiles called gharials and you know this this is kind of an odd thing i think if the environment wasn't in peril i would love to study like alligators crocodiles amphibians lizards i would love to be a herpetologist and so for me this was really interesting to see just how like the this very rare and endangered type of type of crocodile is now in danger from sand mining so that's one really interesting case and a lot of the sand that's that's the peculiar places it's going as you said it's like in every house skyscraper glass building but we also find it in our electronics we find it in our toothpaste we find it in powdered glass bottles and, and wine you know glass cups but also in wine itself so it's like makes up the products that that hold what we're consuming in the buildings that hold us but also what we are consuming which is odd mm-hmm yeah, that is weird. I find that weird. I mean, it's kind of like sawdust, right? Like, or fillers. You sort of, you know, think, okay, well, I'm sure there's some sort of filler in that 75 cent beef jerky from the dollar store, but you're never quite sure what it is. You're not. I find it surprising. No, you're not. There's so many things that we eat and it's like, it can kind of come under this catchphrase of, you know, natural flavor, or natural ingredients or different other titles. You don't really know what it means. You know, there's so much of the stuff we eat synthetic and it can kind of get, you know, a little bit hidden in those kind of, I guess, like umbrella, umbrella ingredients. So yeah, definitely. 
So how does it like how does it get fixed? I mean, I know that when we look at when you and I've talked about um, fossil fuels, you know, your opinion has always been you know kind of both. Uh, respectful of the environment, but also respectful of life. Saying, for example, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, plastics are here. We can't just get off plastics. And a lot of the, air quotes, trendy Enviro solutions are no better. And so that's where you talk about the circular, cir- circular economy. So, how, like, how do we take that and and look at something like sand and say, okay, well, are you prepared to lose favorite beaches or have rivers shift and move? And all of those types of things in order to maintain sand. But how do you get off of our addiction to sand? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And, you know, I've, I've never, not never, but, you know, in, in recent years, I haven't been a huge fan of World Wildlife Fund because of some of their practices and some of their funding. They seem to be one of the environmental nonprofits doing a lot of work on sand mining and, and providing recommendations. And so some of the solutions that they've put forward and, and from some of my own research suggest nations to be like, oh, you know, stop this sand mining. Um, we obviously need to put pressure on governments to regulate the sand mining that's that's happening. But again, as I mentioned before, more needs to be done to find alternatives for use in construction and for these other applications that that are using sand. So again, it's, hmm. it's like comes back to that demand and supply argument that we need to actually change needs to come from the demand side of things while providing that support for regulatory change as developed nations. And I think part of this too is like increasing public support of the growing demand and finite supply of sand. You know, again, I don't think a ton of people have a lot of awareness or acceptance around what's what's happening with, with sand. Uh, we kind of take it for granted and see it as this cheap commodity versus something that, you know, definitely is finite and plays such a crucial role in marine environments, in biodiversity, in, in culture, in all aspects of our, of our life. And so I it's, think with this too, you know, what's, yeah, go for it. No, no, I was, I was good. I thought you, we just had a little delay there on the thing. So I thought you were done. I was just going to say that is, is sand one of those things that has kind of like, uh, you know, fresh water mining that we hear about in Canada, right? Like some of these drink companies just basically tapping into underground water supplies with no real control or limitations on it. Is sand another one of those blind spots that we as Canadians anyway, have just not even really looked at? <laughs> blind spots is such a good way to put it, Shane. Like we have blind spots for where our energy comes from, where our food and water comes from, and when our where our energy comes from. Those are all massive civilizational blind spots, and they are kept blind spots for a reason because you know we don't question them as much. So, absolutely, water and sand are definitely both civilizational blind spots that are intentionally set up by corporations and government. You know, when we tap groundwater tables for water for plastic bottles, that that depletes the groundwater tables, resources for that region. And often, like we see with water, this is happening in water scarce regions like in California. So now farmers don't have access to that water. Um, Indigenous nations and other communities don't have access to that water. They become even more water scarce. And that meanwhile, that water is getting shipped up here to places like British Columbia, where I am, that is so water abundant that we don't need it. And so a similar thing happens with sand. You know, you you mine sand from a beach. You think, oh, it's not a big deal. There's so much more of it, but it creates beach erosion. It it depletes the biodiversity. It impacts 
um, coastline's ability to buffer against storms and rising sea levels, which we need so much right now as we really work to tackle the climate crisis and, you know, the climate crisis, again, leading to rising sea levels, riding to an increase in storms. So we absolutely need to address those blind spots of water, sand, of all of the other materials and aspects that we rely on for existence. You know, our, our energy, our consumables, and where our waste goes. It's an amazing conversation. We always, I always feel like we just barely get a chance to scratch the surface in this. So, um, you know, I know that there's been a lot of movement on plastics. I would like you to come back maybe next week, Lily, and let's, let's kind of get talking about plastics in the water. Cause I know there's been a lot of conversation around that and I don't want to diminish the other news conversations that have been circling around lately. Cause there's certainly been a lot of heavy things going on everywhere, but in all of that, we often do miss some of these other stories. Um, that maybe provide some insight so everybody can start to make some decisions that better work for them and their belief system, which is really cool. So thanks for spending some time. And the irony of all of it is that the whole conversation starts with the fact that you like to be in the water with slimy things and I don't. And a lot of those slimy things spend some time in the sand anyway. So here we are full circle. And we'll meet somewhere in the middle and you'll uh, gain an appreciation for slimy things at some point. <laughs> I'm happy to come watch you surf. I'm just going to sit in the lawn chair on the beach and enjoy the sand while you do this dancing with the slimy things. That's all. That sounds fantastic. Thanks so much, Lou. Thank you for having me. It's the Shift Podcast. Welcome, Welcome. to the world of weird things. With Greg Fish. Fish is back on the uh, back on the West Coast in the Pacific Time Zone. How does that feel? That's my good news Tuesday. <laughs> is it? Feels good to be back, not on the air at uh, two in the morning. Three. Well, from two to three. Yeah that that that's yeah. definitely uh, that's definitely nice. It's tough. It's tough, man. When I uh, when I do the show uh, for Melanie's in Ottawa, it's one to five, uh, and it's different. It is hard on the bod, man. Everyone, these, uh, these, you know, we're lucky here. Brendan Kelly is, he does the work post show. So he does the post production after the shift. So he sticks around for another couple more hours after we're done. So, um, you know, the 10 o'clock start time, which is awesome for Brendan Kelly is, is, is it runs late too. So, well, let's yeah. be fair. It's not like I just show up, sit down and then the, the, the show starts. It's more like an eight thirty start time. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, he's just fishing for more money there. That's what I that am, is. yeah. That'll get well, clipped it, out and sent to the boss, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all have to justify our existence somehow, right? That's true. That's true. I love it. Okay, uh, here we are, ready for the world of weird things. Speaking of working too much, it's kind of what's falling onto your radar a little bit here, Greg Fish. Uh, yes, very much so, because uh, it actually really got me thinking uh, about some of the studies that I've seen about what is actually the perfect work day and the perfect work week. And it turns out that there have been, well, golf yes, but uh, well, it d- depends on how you feel about golf. That n- n- not really, not really my thing, <laughs> but, thing, no. but, but no, in general, the, a lot of companies have been trying to figure out what is like, how are we going to get peak performance out of people without working them to death? Um, mm-hmm. Now, obviously, different companies are different about that. Uh, but, you know, Microsoft did a number of experiments. There are a number of smaller companies, a number of startups that have tried playing with alternative work weeks and work days. And what they found 
is actually pretty interesting. So currently, because of a number of compromises and a number of different uh, political um, political agreements that have been struck over the years, uh, we are dealing with a normally 40-hour work week. That's on what we base everything. But mm. according to that research, a more ideal base, which should actually be about 20 hours or so. Mm. 20 hours of work for the same yes. amount of pay? That's gonna. What's, that's the next part of the question is how much money do you get for that? Well, you should be getting the same amount of money. But here's the interesting part. So you might think that these companies that are just trying to, they're essentially just trying to give their employee employees some sort of a gift. Like, you know, it's, it's fine. We'll give you an extra day off. You know, don't leave us because we don't want to deal with turnover. You know, we'll, we'll shorten your work day. What they've actually found is that productivity either stays the same or goes up because here's what happens. I'm sure you're familiar with the postulate that work expands to fill the time available for it. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that happens is because if you tell people that, well, your day is eight hours, the, the typical person can really do deep, focused work for about four, four and a half hours a day. That's mm -hmm. the concentration that our brains are capable of to like really focus and really drill down and really be in the zone. And then the rest of the time is really it's breaks, it's TPS reports, it's chats around the water cooler, it's getting Cigarettes. your coffee. I'm sorry? Cigarettes. Yep, I know exactly. lots of people, they stretch out their workday with cigarettes. Yeah, it, it, exactly. So what happens when you compact the time is you say, okay, you still have to get all the stuff done, but now you have less time to do it. So people will, on their own, do a lot of the things that very highly paid efficiency experts recommend that they go in and do. They stop with the breaks. They don't surf the web. They cut out the IMs. They tell people not to disturb them. They really focus on their tasks. They get it done. And then their reward is they get to have more time to themselves. There's some amazing brain science about efficiency of getting work done and what that takes about focus. And I know for me, when I used to do some sort of, uh, when I used to design music radio, that when there was a task about scheduling a day or going over categories or sorting things out, I would say, I'm going to have this task done by one in the afternoon and at one o'clock, I'm going to stop and I'm going to go for a walk. And I used to create that. And this sounds kind of, you know, mystical, but I used to create it and sure. And then I would just be focused. I would get the job done. Off I go. And I wouldn't let anything else get in the way. Other emails, Facebook, whatever. Then sure enough, you get it done and it always seemed to magically end at one o'clock then you would go for a walk. So that's to your point about um, about what is the workday look like. And to the other point is that I've really, really found through all of that, that, um, you know, the brain science about interruptions and distractions, there was some different numbers that are tossed about, but you hear roughly about 20 minutes. It takes about 20 minutes to get into the zone on something. And the minute that someone calls, interrupts, or texts, that they break that and it takes 20 more minutes to get back into that zone again. So if you can schedule your day and remove distractions, you're going to become more efficient, kind of like a compound effect on efficiency as you remove distractions from your day. Yeah. And this is all extremely well known. This has been confirmed by many studies. And, you know, I can tell you right now as a programmer, I have to be in the zone a lot. I have to be very focused a lot. So when someone interrupts me in the middle of code, 
uh, my first reaction is just absolute rage and fury. Uh, <laughs> so, and and I also have to admit that you know I'm talking about uh, not you know not burning out uh, a, a shorter work day and really focusing on getting things done and and then having time to yourself to kind of you know live your life. But I'm I'm a huge hypocrite about that. You know, I, I definitely uh, I definitely do a lot more than that on a daily basis. Even though science actually says that's not really good for you, you're not really getting that much done. You you start hitting the point of diminishing returns after about five six hours. So mm-hmm. there's so I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who are listening to this and going, oh well, that's perfect. So if I can force my employees to hyper focus and get everything done in 20 hours, imagine what I can do in another 20 hours. Well, right. no, that's not how that works it's like trying to say if i just if if i just push the pedal to the metal and drive my car at top speed down the straightaway i should just be able to do that all day no you're you'll you'll burn out your tires you'll run out of gas it's not you you can't run things at peak performance forever it just it doesn't work so that's really the that's really what these companies are finding as they're as they're doing these experiments and shortening the work day and the work week. They're essentially trying to say that we can get more stuff done or in a much shorter period of time then we give that time back to our employees. They go out, they get recharged, and then the other very interesting thing about the way that the mind works is some of our best ideas we come up with them during downtime. A lot of yeah, companies essentially say, well, let's put everybody in an open office and they're going to talk to each other and they're going to exchange ideas and boom, we'll have innovation. And then they were really surprised that that's not how it worked because you have to give people downtime so their brain just kind of idles and stuff starts coming up to the surface. That's how so, it works. So there's there are got to, there has to be some exceptions to this fish because the reality is, is that a truck driver can't get to Vancouver any faster. Oh no! Absolutely, this is this is really meant for um, focus. What what what's known as knowledge work. So if you're doing a lot of things that involve uh, programming, if you're doing things that involve uh, some sort of some sort of creative effort, that's what it's really that's what that's really meant for. Um, okay. If you're doing if you're doing things like working in a warehouse, if you're driving a truck, uh, that's that doesn't really apply as much. Uh, because you're not, you, you don't have to like necessarily hyper focus on certain things. You're doing much more routinized tasks, and those take up less of your your mental bandwidth. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if if you drive, you think less about driving, and you're more focused on 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 other things. Uh, at the same time, though, we also want to make these things targets for automation because that's really where we have been going with this for a very long time. And as these as these professions become um, targets for automation and more machines take over, maybe self-driving trucks in the future, maybe something, maybe fleets of trucks controlled by single driver, uh, almost like in a video game. Uh, all of these things are, are being researched. All of these things are, are very significant concerns. We want to move people into these more creative fields where we can take advantage of the fact that, you know, they're intelligent humans and can do a lot of creative things. And that's when this will really kind of go into effect for them. Although funny enough, there have been some experiments with warehouse workers saying, well, what if we do five hour shifts instead of, you know, 10, 12 hour shifts. And they found that the movement is a lot faster. Yes, you're cycling in more people, but at the same time, those people are much more efficient and then they can 
you know, they, they, they work at their peak performance, then they can feel a little bit more relaxed and refreshed uh, for their next day. When I worked in the warehouse stacking groceries on pallets, I know that there was a formula to the efficiencies. You would get a, a task to do that would have this many pounds of weight and items, and that task was rated by a time plus distance. And in the mornings, it was far more stringent for time. Like your efficiency had to be very high to get 100% or 110%. And if you were uh, slacking off, you know, those numbers would drop quickly. Now in the afternoon, you could stop, you could take a bathroom break, whatever, and still get 100% efficiency because the formula changed through the course of time, uh, through the day, because the expectation was lower and lower through the day. So that leads to that part about the work. And I was thinking about construction work. I mean, that does take a lot of things out of the equation. I mean, they're just realities. If you're working on paving a road, um, you have to, it takes time to pave the road. But if those shifts did turn over, you could see how the efficiency would kick back in if people did it differently. So it is curious. I don't think a business owner in the world, or I'm coming to work for you, that says that, by the way, we're going to pay you the same amount of money for five hours. Um, that would be great. I mean, it absolutely would be, and but again, that's and that's really the argument that you will actually get the same amount of work, if not even more, if you stagger the shifts this way, because what you're doing is you're maximizing the peak performance of your employees. But you know, this is the part where I, where I'm going to have to be more pessimistic and say I really don't think that that's something that's going to catch on anytime soon, because there's still going to be a lot of uh, managers who very much equate the time at the office or the time at a site with work being done. They're not some, they, they, they understand that yes, there are time wasters and things of that nature, and they're going to be very mad about them. But at the same time, they, they're so used to, okay, we have a 40 hour work week or have, we have a 10 hour shift and that's the way that it's always done and the, always been done. And that's the way that it, that it's always happened. You just can't, move them from that and say that, yeah. yes, we've adjusted a lot of formulas and a lot of performance, uh, a lot of performance measurements to fit that, to fit what you want. Yeah. But that's not but, necessarily the right way to go about things. There's a lot of managers that they create their own sense of purpose and um, demand by micromanaging and saying that you guys can't do this without me, as opposed to setting them free. So that's a whole mentality uh, shift that you're proposing there that would be uh, completely, completely different. Uh, to look at it that way. What do we do about the uh, the people who screw the pooch, though, Fish? Because there's an awful lot of people in a text here that comes in and says there's always people that are going to screw the pooch. So what um, what do you do about those people? Do they just not fit anymore? Are they, you know, who's going to hold them accountable and make them work? Because there's a lot of them. Well, aren't there managers who are supposed to do that and evaluate that and say, well, you're not you're not actually meeting the performance goal. So I'm sorry, but we're going to have to let you go. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's but that's that's, today, that's the though. job, isn't it? It is the job, but I would agree with you. But the reality is, is there's still people that get away with it. In a lot of cases, the manager is the one that do it the most. So, I mean, the, in today's world, it's no different, right? Like if you are uh, lazy and, and, you know, procrastinating and slow worker, if, if you can't get it done in eight hours and you've got a manager chasing you for eight, what makes you think you're going to get it done in five? Well, if you don't get it done in five, then you lose your job. I mean, that's really that's really what it comes down to. You're always going to have people that are going to take advantage of any situation. You're always going to have people who are lazy. You're always going to have people who are coasting by. That's always going to be an issue no matter how long the, the, the workday is. A lot of these people, if you give them 12 hours to do 
the work that you expect for them in five hours, they still wouldn't get it done. It it it, right. it really that's really kind of the whole point. That's the, that's really the art of management. It's not being there and watching over people to get stuff done every hour of every day. It's trying to figure out who are people who are motivated, who understand the mission of your organization, who are actually, who take pride in their work, who are actually willing to put in the effort and make sure that the people who don't either find a place in your organization where you can channel their abilities or you cycle them out. That's that's what management is. That's what it's supposed to be. Um, yeah. There's really no shortcut to doing it the right way. Well, I agree with you. I, I do wholeheartedly. But the reality to me is there are people who go to jobs that think that the uh, the business owners or the managers owe them something. Uh, they do. It's called a paycheck, and they also owe you respect and maybe some benefits or however that works out, and that's the agreement. But there are people who believe that the government owes them something, that the um, that the employer owes them something, and they don't. So to me, that is deeply rooted in people's expectations about what work looks like. They don't know what work is. Well, I come here. You owe me. Well, I do. I owe you $200 for today. That's what I gave you. See you tomorrow. Hi. <laughs> uh- uh, yeah, outside of outside of of treating people well and making sure that they actually are engaged with the work, so they can get the best result out of these people, there's really not not that much you can you can do. Uh, again, this is this is going to be one of those problems that there's there's really no solution that is just like obvious and, and stares everyone in the face. There's just yeah, uh, I I I couldn't tell you what to do about people like that. Uh, that's that's really all I can say. All I, all I can yeah. focus on is this is what this is what science says is the best way to run certain workplaces. So let's give that a try. Uh, and and there really is a you know there, there really has to be this middle ground between people essentially coming in and saying um, I'm owed something simply because I exist and you know business owners during the coronavirus pandemic and, and business owners and and politicians who are um who are funded by these by these business owners going on TV and saying well you know um if some people have to die for the economy to keep going the way that it's going then that's fine because that's you know we need to keep the economy going there has to be a there has to be a healthy middle ground between between the two and right now i don't think that there really is one in in many cases which is why you're seeing so many breakdowns and so many people quitting their jobs and trying to hunt for new ones um, and so many places short-staffed because they can't get their workers back because the workers don't feel safe or respected we have to get Mm -hmm. we really have to take these these studies not necessarily as like okay so this is how we run our workplaces from now in but let's consider this information and let's think about how we can really redefine work how can we get rid of bs pointless tasks how can we get rid of costly micromanagers who basically don't really add very much to the company how can we focus on getting work done and getting meaningful work because i can assure you that there's a lot of people out there who come into work and think okay i'm just going to coast by i'm going to do the absolute minimum effort um who really just need an engagement and a challenge and the minute that you actually give them a real engagement and a challenge they're going to say you know what i'm actually going to give this my all and see how this works i actually i'm really excited about this i want to do this so it, it is a very it's a very complicated balancing act and really that's why management is a is its own profession and people have to be trained to be managers yeah 
And that's a good point. And also Annie says this too. She says, I did my best work in the first five hours after lunch. Not much got done. And you can ask many very successful people. They will tell you that getting up early and getting things done in the morning when there's less distractions leads them to a better day. And uh, for me, the curiosity comes from one of the things I struggle with this show, show is that is that getting up at seven or eight in the morning, getting four or five hours of work done, having lunch, then going out and getting in front of people to be social and talk about ideas and, you know, brainstorm on things that are coming out. Now, I can tell you this, Fish, as we have to wrap up, but this is great. Um, you know, the reality is, is integrity is a big word and it's not present in all things. And after COVID and working from home, if ever there was an opportunity to reinvent what a workday looks like, this is the opportunity to do it. And I'm excited by that part. I hope we do. Absolutely. 100%. We are we are long overdue for it. And I really do hope that this happens. And uh, I really do hope that there's a business owner listening to this and thinking, how can I actually you know, integrate science to run my workplace better, reduce my turnover, maximize my maximize my productivity and make my workers feel respected, engaged, and really eager to actually come into work and get something done. Well, I know that I work more and more efficiently when I don't feel exhausted. And many people do feel exhausted for many reasons. Greg Fish, theworldofweirdthings.com. If you want to check out his blog and his podcast, it's all there for you online. Thanks, Fishy. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.